Our guest today is Robert Toombs. He is Professor Emeritus of French History and Fellow of St. John's College, Cambridge. He is the author of This Sovereign Isle, Britain in and Out of Europe, which is published by Penguin Books. In this succinct and elegantly written account, Robert Toombs argues that the UK's decision to leave the EU can be explained by the country's distinct historical experience, especially in the 20th century, and due to its deeper ties outside Europe. At the same time, he argues that in deciding to leave the EU, the British people were reflecting a scepticism about the EU that is evident among other populations in European member states. The book was published in 2021, and in our conversation, Robert Toombs reflects on some of the developments over the past two years since the book came out. You can find his most recent insights in two new chapters of the updated version of his classic book, The English and Their History, also published by Penguin Books. It's a way of, of, of escaping from, in many cases, a very dark and traumatic history. Although the 20th century was also rather dark and traumatic for us, it was by no means as bad as it was for much of the continent, and indeed, in many ways, a source of pride and confidence. That's, that's an, I think that's an obvious difference. What explains the pathology of Brexit, or what what explains how people can be could have been crazy enough to vote to leave the EU? You know, what? How can we diagnose this disease? There's never any introspection. There's never any consideration of the EU and its failings. The government and industry would make a huge effort to improve um, vocational training and education in the in the less well-off parts of the country, because suddenly th they would need workers. They would not simply be able to support well-educated and and cheap workers from Eastern Europe. And of course, this didn't happen because it turned out to be much more convenient to carry on importing labour. Right. So, um, a pleasure to be speaking to you today. And I'll, can I begin with a couple of questions? that we ask all our guests. What led you to write the book and what are the main messages you intended to communicate? I can't exactly remember deciding to write the book. Um, I, can't, I can't remember a moment in which I said, I'm going to write a book about Brexit. I mean, I had been writing quite a bit of sort of ephemeral stuff um, and I suppose I must have thought it would be a good idea to put it, put it into a book. As it seemed to me, not many people were writing books on the uh, supporting the Brexit side of the argument. I suppose I thought it would be a good idea to do that. And the message, which is, I suppose, the message that historians tend to think they're putting forward, which is that things are usually more complicated than they appear at first sight. As we all know, most of what we might call the, the British intelligentsia um, were, were very much against Brexit, very much in favour. Well, were they in favour of the EU? I mean, a, a recent book on this has, has, has said that the, they were really anti-Brexit rather than pro-EU. But, you know, most of the intelligentsia was, were definitely anti-Brexit. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, I wasn't, and, and I knew a few other people who weren't. And I think I thought that it was time to try at least to put a reasoned case for the for, for Brexit. I ought to say, I suppose, that my, my position on this has or did evolve. I mean, I was not an ardent Brexiteer from the beginning. Indeed, I uh, the first thing I ever wrote on this subject, which I only did because I'd written a history of England, and therefore I started getting asked to make comments on things, was uh, I remember saying I thought that David Cameron would renegotiate some sort of 
associate membership and that I thought that that's what the, the majority of the electorate would, would go for. Um, of course, that proved not to be not to be possible. But that's what I originally thought. And I and I certainly went through a phase of thinking we we ought to be going for, you know, the Norway option or something like that. And I think it was over the course of the of the negotiations and over uh, on domestic politics that um, I, I I became what I suppose some people would call um, a, a hardline extreme Brexiteer. One one anecdote, which I think I mentioned in the book, is that I was at a party in Newnham, which you you may know is a sort of academic enclave um, on the outskirts of Cambridge, and uh, I was talking to a lady who said, um, I've, I've finally understood how people could have voted for Brexit because my gardener and my cleaning lady have explained it to me. And I thought that's, I, I thought that was so irritating that I thought I ought to uh, at least try to talk back. I'm curious about the arguments that they, that they used. I mean, uh, if, I, if I can continue, I think uh, at the heart of the book, is the argument that the UK-specific historical trajectory and its geography set, have set it apart. If I give that impression, it, it, it's a less subtle impression than I'd like to give. I mean, I, I do say at one point that um, an offshore island can't have the same history as a, a country on the, on the North European plain. I think that's pretty obvious. But I've never been a believer in historical determinism. And indeed, one of the things I try to say in the book is that... Um, Attitudes in in 2016, at least in Britain and in other European countries towards the EU, were very similar, and therefore the idea, which I think people on both sides of the argument often are rather fond of, that this was a sort of deterministic decision, either because our history was so different from that of Europe that we were doomed or destined to leave it, or indeed on the other side of the argument that British culture or English culture was so deformed by memories of empire and nostalgia that we were we were going to leave for that reason, seemed to me just to miss the very obvious facts of similar attitudes in, in, in the United Kingdom and in other European countries towards the EU at that time. And of course, if you, if you I mean, I, I do think there are historical differences, and I think some of them are, are in some ways significant, but um, they clearly didn't convince nearly half the population, including most of its intelligentsia and most of its politicians, that this was the case. So it would be a rather weak argument to say, well, you know, our history has made it impossible for us to be part of the EU when most people don't see it that way, or at least very many people don't see it that way. Or the thing I would say is most... Uh, important as a historical difference is, is a fairly short-term one. I mean, you know, one can talk about, and I have talked about Magna Carta and certain myths or traditions of, of separateness and so on, Shakespeare and all that. But I mean, I think the thing that really counted was the fact that the experience of the 20th century was so different. And therefore, what for many um, continental Europeans is seen as a way of escaping from their history. You know, you I expect you, you have friends as I have who say, I don't really feel German, or I don't really feel Italian, I feel European. It's a way of, of, of escaping from, in many cases, a very dark and, and traumatic history. And although the 20th century was also rather dark and traumatic for us, it was by no means as, as bad as it was for much of the continent, and indeed, in many ways, a source of pride and confidence. That's, that's an, I think that's an obvious difference. Not that it, it meant that the British were never so emotionally committed to the idea of a European project as a kind of resurrection of the European spirit or something like that. And I suppose the other obvious thing about the 20th century is that in times of danger, 
we um, would look for um, assistance and alliance to countries outside Europe, uh, at, obviously to America, to, to the to the empire, the Commonwealth, and therefore the idea that we were that you know that Europe was our destiny is is simply not the impression that the 20th century gives as an experience. So I, I think in some ways I, I might be a British Gaullist in which, you know, de Gaulle said that Churchill had said to him, though I think this is not in the, uh, in the British record of the, of the discussion, that Churchill's supposed to have said to him, if we have to choose between you and America, we'll always choose America. And if we have to choose between the continent and the open sea, we'll always choose the open sea. Well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But I mean, that is, I think, something that is not really conceivable if you are Czech or Austrian, um, and it is conceivable if you're British. Mm, no, very, very interesting. Um, and there is a there is a longer term historical debate about this. I mean, so your your answer there sort of pulled us onto the territory of um, David Edgerton and arguments about 1945. But but you talk about um, three other historians who've emphasise the importance of a long um, relationship with the British Isles on the continent, but reach different conclusions. And mm. um, David Reynolds, Brendan Sims, Stuart Sweeney, and they offered various reasons why, why that relationship was, was close. I wondered why you arrive at a different conclusion. David Reynolds, I think, takes the view or took the view, um, I haven't talked to him about it, that um, Britain's great failure, and this is, of course, a sort of very orthodox view, Britain's great failure mm. was not mm. to get involved in European integration from the very beginning. And that that's therefore something that we have to repair and try to get back into this this system. And that that Lee, I mean, this was the the view which was taken by has been taken for many years by by British politicians who incline towards EU membership, uh, which of course was at, at one time was all of them or practically all of them. Um, I mean, I think that um, I, I rather take the view uh, that that. Um, there was no point at which Britain could have had um, a European system which would have fitted its interests. Well, you might say no country has got exactly what it wants out of European integration. But then I suppose my, you know, my earlier point is that we were not so committed to that. And therefore, there was a tendency to say, well, this is not really working for us. So should we be thinking of something else in a way that m many European countries would not really would not really think? So I think I think David takes a, a very orthodox integrationist view that I think it is not really borne out by what has happened. Uh, Brendan Sims' very interesting ideas about Britain as the as the as the the great European power and that Brit that Europe can't do without Britain and that indeed ideally Europe would be led by a, a sort of condominium of, of Britain and Germany. Well I mean I think that's no there's no sign of that happening. And uh insofar as Europe needs Britain for its security, then I would say it has it through NATO. And I think the events uh, over Ukraine have, have shown that pretty clearly. Uh, the, the idea that leaving the EU was was turning our back on Europe, you know, there were lots of sort of jokes about towing the British Isles into the middle of the Atlantic. I mean, that was never a serious, um, it was always a caricature. Uh, and Britain's um, commitment to NATO is rather stronger than that of many European other European countries, most obviously France. And uh, I think Stuart Sweeney again took a view that seems to me, um, with the greatest respect, have been somewhat 
bypassed by events, which is that European integration was inevitable. You know, this is the idea of the European train leaving the station and Britain, poor old Britain yeah. being left behind again. Uh, well, the train isn't leaving the station and hasn't left the station. And I think the idea that the European, you know, the completion of the EU as a, as a, as a, well, as a federation or as a confederation is inevitable is not uh, is not at the moment looking like a very strong argument to mm. me. Mm. And I suppose I've never I've never been a declinist in the way that perhaps David Reynolds is, uh, and it, it may be because I'm a. I'm not by training a British historian, but of, of a French historian and uh, of the 19th century. And it, you know, looking at it as, as it were from the, from a continental point of view, the idea of Britain as the dominant superpower of the 19th century, a position from which we've declined, is not one that would really have been recognised in lots of other European countries. I mean, Britain was perhaps primus inter pares of the European great powers, but it was never a dominant force in European politics. And, and the idea that, you know, our decline forces us to join in a, a federal system or a confederal system seems to be just not to be not to be accurate. And, and there's also a lot, there's a longer, there's a sort of longer debate. I mean, uh, maybe sort of from the 80s, 90s, uh, Linda Colley and, and Norman Davis were certainly involved in, you know, emphasizing Britain's connection with the European mainland. Also challenges to the idea of a sort of continuous identity from scholars as diverse as Ferdinand Mountain and, and, and Michael McMoran. Uh, you don't engage with that, uh, but, do, I mean, do you need to? Was that a conscious well, choice? It's a short book. If it, was, if it was a longer book, perhaps I should have done. Mm. Uh, I mean, I hope that I do. Uh, indeed, my first chapter is all about England's and Britain's connections with Europe. Um, and I suppose my, my message is that these have been very varied and that they don't predestine us to any particular relationship with Europe. Um, and that uh, that a, a whole lot of different relationships have gone on over the centuries. And that, and as I say, perhaps this is natural for an offshore island. As for continuing national identity, well, yeah, it's a very interesting historiographical question, which I've never, I admit, given much thought to. But yes, the idea that there is a constant identity is clearly uh, is clearly untrue in, in most in most ways nation is something that exists to a considerable extent in the imagination okay that imagination can or, or does in most cases attach itself to institutions uh, but the idea that these are in some senses constant and unchanging is is evidently not true on the other hand there is something about them that remains I mean, I, in another in another place, I, I give the example of Cambridge University as being a kind of microcosm. Um, is is there something about Cambridge now that is connected with Cambridge in previous centuries? And um, in, in in obvious ways there isn't, and in, in in other obvious ways there is. And I think a nation is like that. It it does have institutions. It does have okay, constantly changing memories, but at, at best it has a sense of community and a sense of place. There is some continuity and a great deal of change, but our connections with Europe are evidently of the of the greatest importance with the of the continent. I should say we are a European country, obviously mm. part of a European culture. Um, but, but you get to go back to my pretty obvious point about being an island. We 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 probably have more connections with the world outside Europe than any other European country, with the possible exception of. Well, Italy, Ireland, Spain, Portugal, of course, all have important connections, and France too. But I would nevertheless say that ours are, are more substantial and more crucial 
than, than those. You know, it's a matter of degree. Yeah. I mean, that's something that we, we could return to a bit, a bit later. Yes. yes, sure. But clear. Moving on now more to, to the actual referendum and, and mm. the, the four years that followed. On the, deba- the sorry, on the debate following the vote in June 2016, you have a great quote. <laughs> if intellectuals are meant to enrich and enlighten public debate, this was not their finest hour. <laughs> the two sides could not really engage. I mean, you carefully reference the words and positions of authors, journalists, commentators. Um, what do you think explains this polarization? And also I picked up, <laughs> is it significant that they were all... Nearly all, nearly all of them were men. Yeah, most of them were men. I'm, I'm not sure what the significance of, of that is. I mean, I, I mentioned Julie Birchill as being uh, a writer on the Brexit side, a playwright indeed, though her play didn't last for very long. And uh, I, me- I mentioned Kate Atkinson and Alice Smith on the on the Remain side. But I agree, most, most are men. Whether women, I mean, I, I just don't know this. You, until you asked the question, I hadn't thought about it. Whether, whether I know at least one... Um, woman who has a prominent intellectual standing within these discussions, who has never wanted to express a clear um, uh, leave or remain sympathy, uh, partly for personal reasons. Whether whether women were more cautious about um, joining in the, the the mayhem, as it were, I don't know, or whether it's just that I happen to pick on more men, or men are more men were more vocal, or more. Um, but but why? I mean, I suppose I'd, inter- I'd I'd include myself into this. It was not our finest hour collectively, in that we did tend to polarize quite quickly. But I think, okay, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? I mean, I think those on the Remain side were were more at fault, in that they I think very quickly adopted a caricature, um, and a, a, a set of stereotypes which they never departed from, and indeed, I think, in many cases, have still not departed from, uh, and uh, repeated the same old tropes over and over again, uh, and just found it very difficult to understand people who I think they tended to regard as their social and intellectual inferiors. You know, what was there to understand? Uh, Because these people were stupid, racist, xenophobic, old, and all the rest. And therefore, I mean, I, I um, I get lots and lots of papers uh, on on Brexit, and they almost all are taking um, an uncritical Remain position. And it's basically what explains the pathology of Brexit, or what what explains how people can be could have been crazy enough to vote to leave the EU. You know what? How can we diagnose this disease? There's never any introspection. There's never any consideration of the EU and its failings. Um, it's purely a, rep- a repetition of a of a, a consensus view, um, a complete. It seems to me a, a, an almost entirely uncritical one, and one lacking, as I said, in any in any introspection. Yeah, to follow up on that, another great quote that I found found from uh, in your book, and, and this time you're 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 referencing uh, author Jonathan Davis. Remainers understood leavers far less than leavers understood them. Maybe you could say a bit more about what you mean by this or how you considered it played out in a post-Brexit <laughs> environment, yeah. Well, as I said, I think largely because most, um, is this unfair? Most Remainers who expressed an opinion tended to um, all adopt the same view of their opponents, not really to engage with them. 
not think that there's anything to understand in them um, because because they were essentially um, stupid or ignorant or or bad um, and and did not really think much about the issues. The I mean, quite a number of us were invited to take part in debates. Okay, not not with you, not with you two, um, but you know, meet, meetings in Cambridge, meeting elsewhere, and it was quite difficult to get people to talk about the EU at all. So if you tried to raise the question of whether the Eurozone was a, was a sensible system or whether it was working properly or, um, um, or, or whether the EU had a serious de- democratic deficit or, you know, any, any obvious questions like that, people didn't want to talk about it. It was always about um, w- why people should have, um, you know, voted to make life more difficult for people who are going on holiday in the continent or stopping students from being part of Erasmus. You know, th- very things that seem to me rather superficial. Um, and uh, some of the authors I mentioned seem to me not really to take... I mean, I'm a great admirer of Kate Atkinson's work. Find very enjoyable and very clever. But in, in the book in which she refers to Brexit, she her villains are, are Brexiteers, but they're... they're they're men who's um, who are making money out of of people smuggling from Eastern Europe, and you'd think, well, in that case, they should have been very much in favour of free movement. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a sort of silliness there, with the greatest respect to Kate Atkins, the sort of silliness there of people who don't really think about what they're saying, or they don't really think about what the issues are. Thank you. <laughs> um, a, a very good rendering of the of yeah uh, the type of language you used and. Uh... Simplification, essentialization, even of of the yeah. voting. Yes. So, reading through the book, there is a sense throughout that the a leave win was the likely outcome. Indeed, you you suggest at one point that the Cameron government remain had it remained neutral, the leave majority would have been more decisive. I mean, here at the risk of indulging in a bit of alternative history. Yeah. What would the result have been if the whole cabinet had remained neutral, including Michael Gove and, and Boris Johnson, yeah. um, for instance? And, and maybe what what effect could a, a poll before the actual referendum took place, but a poll yes. showing a leave win? Yeah. Would that affect? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, could I begin with a sort of general answer? The, one of the reasons I thought that leave was likely to win is that um, support within the EU generally had been in decline. For, for you know for twenty for, for twenty years, and w- what I do say in the book, which I would emphasize here, that it seemed to me that the crucial thing was that we were not members of the eurozone. Everything that one might say about historical, cultural differences, political traditions, and so on, would have would have been would have not made any difference had we been in the eurozone. I think because we might well have ended up like say Greece, in which the EU was extremely unpopular, but hardly anyone thought there was any prospect of leaving it. You can explain the unpopularity uh, in Greece or in Britain or indeed in France, but that's not the same as explaining a, a vote to leave. And I think the, it was only because we were not in the eurozone that we could we could contemplate that. I mean, I think the the emergence of um, of Boris Johnson and Michael Gove was was important because it gave what had been a very in inchoate tendency uh, a couple of major figureheads, and I it, that I think certainly did give a great boost. Of course, we. We now know that um, they were not able or willing to give the kind of leadership that was needed and appeared possible. But nevertheless, I think at the time, their presence was was very important. Not only the whole cabinet, the whole government being neutral in, its, in, their, in their public pronouncements, it would also have meant 
the government machine being neutral. And that, I think, was one of the most important things. You know, what's, what I call and what was called at the time Project Fear, the Treasury um, predictions of economic disaster, I think were very important in reducing what would, I say, would say, have been... Uh, it, the logic is simple. These these predictions were, were constantly repeated and still are indeed and had a powerful effect. They, they necessarily reduce the number of people who are willing to vote. Brexit. I think I think it's inescapable, simple logic to say that the the majority would have been larger had the government machine, the treasury, not been been producing um, material that was, uh, let's say, um, controversial to put it politely, and in many ways has proved to be misplaced and uh, and unfounded. No, I would come back. I would come back on this because um, I mean there are all kinds of um, errors, mistake, and, and snobbery on, on the on the Remainer side. I remember it's a, it's a cartoon now, but it it is uh, it's a it's a sort of Remainer response to a sort of lever. Uh, e- email or message or text or whatever or tweet and it says um you've got the commas in the wrong place you know that that's the kind of you know uh though on bar kind of you know um sense that there was on the on, on the remainder side but i mean nevertheless you know there was the um the lever bus yes well, <laughs> so- well that is the that is the example that everybody mentions <laughs> Um, i mean i don't know uh, how inaccurate that that figure was um it was um uh, some people say it was an underestimate. Some people say it was an overestimate. But the the point about uh, paying quite large sums of money into the EU budget was certainly true. Um, I think it was you know you might say well is did that did that did, did people vote for that reason? No doubt some people did, or at least it as it were it it crystallised a more a vaguer sense that somehow the EU was not was not working very well for Britain. Which was, after all, and had always been a net contributor. Um, but I, 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 I think that the the Treasury predictions of of mass unemployment, huge tax increases, emergency budgets, and so on, was uh, was more was more um, influential, or at least as influential. Well, I'm disappointed also to hear about the about the sort of lack of engagement about the EU because I would I would have loved to be doing this. I was doing it for UK and exchange Europe elsewhere, really. Yes, elsewhere in the well, country, and so so it's a shame. Oh well, surely we didn't meet up earlier. No, it was a really extraordinary experience, I must say, because yeah. um, because you know, as academics, we don't usually have the opportunity to speak to the general public in community groups, you know, from meeting after meeting, and it really mm. was a, um, a a tremendous experience, I must say. But anyway, it's not about me. It's good to be this, this discussion isn't about me. Um, but- um, in in the book, there are multiple references to the idea that the UK wanted, to, sorry, the EU wanted to reverse the result of the referendum. That you know, it wanted to sort of do another Denmark or Ireland, you know, to, to have a second referendum mm-hmm. that would um, sort of change the result, or or even that it wanted to stop the UK's um, withdrawal. And um, I just, I really wonder about that. I mean, that I find that quite a controversial view because um, you know, from certainly if you look at the public utterances, the EU seemed to be quite clear and quite quick in expressing their regret but also their acceptance of the results. So I just wonder what led you to, to this conclusion? Uh, what's behind the observation? Yeah, well, you know, we it's going to be a long time until we have a, a proper answer to this with the publication of, if they ever are published, of official archives. Um, I think, the, of course, the EU could hardly say openly that it wanted to... Um, uh, I mean, as... Uh, one thing I've looked at are Michel Barnier's memoirs and the recent book by 
Stefan de Rink, he's uh, one of... I mean, they were being fellow, told... A, another guest of ours, I must say. Oh, really? Both, oh, both of them, in fact. Well, I mean, it, it's, they, as they say, they, they were being told by people of, of whom Tony Blair was the most prominent that there was a likelihood of a second referendum. Um, and, um, of course, they would not publicly say anything about this. It would have been counterproductive. But the, the idea that you would either, if possible, reverse, and but in any case, limit and nullify the results of a referendum... I think was was pretty clearly there, and uh, um, I think uh, Barnier says in his memoirs that uh, François Hollande said to him, "There has to be a price to be paid." And I say, and I say, I say in the book, I don't, um, I don't blame them for this. After all, they they were afraid for a time, at least, that Brexit could do major damage to the EU. Macron, after all, said on on uh, on the Andrew Marsha that he thought if the French should be given a referendum, they would have voted to leave as well. Uh, and I think the EU handled it very well, and it was enabled to do so partly by the the, the ambivalence and the unpreparedness, which Barnier is quite scathing about on the British side. They were offered an open goal, really. I think you know nullify in the sense of making sure that Britain would not have any visible benefits from leaving the. You know, I think the British view is, as I understand, if I can summarise it. And certainly Theresa May's view seems to have been, well, you know, the EU will accept that we're leaving and therefore we, we start, as it were, with, with a clean sheet and, we, um, and we, we work out something that's mutually beneficial. I think that was a very naive view uh, and that uh, the EU was not going to say, well, OK, let's, um, let, let's work out something that will, will be good for you and be good for us. They had to make sure it was not good for us. And that's, I suppose, what I meant by nullifying uh, the the referendum result it could not be seen to to give Britain advantages, and uh, I suppose British negotiators should have realised that, or I suppose some of them did realise that and were quite happy to go along with that. One of the things that I thought was very interesting in in uh, the Rink's book was that he says that he, Barnier's team were not at all um, welcoming of the idea of a soft Brexit. Did you did you come across that? Because he said he thought that this would not be sustainable in the long term because it would it would simply fuel uh, anti-european feeling within within britain so uh, it sounds as though what barnier really wanted was something like a clean break and that's sort of in the end what we what we partly got but i think the uh, obviously the the ireland dimension which mm-hmm. theresa may okay i think gave away was too good an opportunity for the EU to miss as a way of making sure that Britain would not become a major, you know, a Singapore on Thames as, uh, um, uh, as I forget who it was who invented that phrase. Um, but, you know, the, the, the idea that Britain would, should, and indeed Barnier says this later, and Frost, you may remember, wrote uh, a, 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 an open letter saying this is, this is not an argument that can be, can be uh, accepted in the 21st century that somehow Britain, for geographical reasons, would have to fall within the EU sphere of influence, as it were. They didn't use that phrase, and could not be given uh, a relationship that was comparable with that of of Canada or something like that. But I don't think, for obvious reasons, partly because of the political situation being so chaotic, the British didn't really have a clear view of what they wanted until quite late on. Um, and then came COVID, no doubt made a difference too. And then now all we know about Boris Johnson's difficulty in in following a consistent line clearly didn't make it easy. 
Yes, I think that, that the, uh, the the three part documentary that um, that's being aired on BBC at the moment sort of bring, brings home some of some yeah. of that. Yeah. But um, but I, I mean, on on the on, on the negotiations themselves, I mean, yes, I mean there was a moment I remember when David Frost did sort of you know put together sort of compilation of provisions that existed on in other free trade agreements and said, look, why can't we have this? Yes. Um, but I, but I just wonder about one of two things, I suppose. The first the first thing is, was it personal? Was it not personal? I mean, I just remember hearing on Sunday morning programme once Andrew McDougall, who was a key negotiator for the Canadians, saying that the thing about the EU is they are a gorilla and they know they're a gorilla. And, you know, there's an asymmetry, whoever they negotiate with. But the, the other thing is, and in a way it speaks to a sort of far wider debate that, that, you know, we could get into, which is where does the union of the four nations fit into all of this? Yeah. And, and, and was it not a, um, a, a, an error not really to think about the Northern Ireland border, and and to um, to sort of li- to limit and simplify it, to, to regard it as a kind of add-on rather than actually a really serious historical commitment and and all the rest of it. I just wonder what like your thoughts on. Uh, well, I, I just don't know if anybody did think about the Northern Ireland border in advance. I think clearly it was it was on the British side. It was not thought to be uh, an insoluble problem. I mean, lots of lots of suggestions were put forward for how you would handle cross-border trade, which were always dismissed by the EU as you know, unicorns or whatever. Um, but of course, in many ways, there is there was previously cross-border trade. There were, there were tax differences, VAT differences, excise duty differences. So there was a there was a border for some purposes anyway. It seems to me that it would have been possible to um, had there been the will to do so on both sides to um, to come to some reasonable uh, compromise. Okay, you might say we've now got that, though not everyone agrees. But uh, I think that the, the, the acceptance very early on by Theresa May that there would be no hard border, which then came to be interpreted as meaning no border at all, was, was, was pretty fatal. Um, you know, it may, it may be that some, well, I'm sure some people on the EU side were genuinely worried about, nor, about Irish, um, you know, the Good Friday Agreement and so on, though they were not a party to that. But I think there were some who um, regarded this as a very valuable diplomatic instrument um, that they could use. But whether whether it should certainly have been thought of before. But it's you know it's difficult to say how this this would you know people were given the vote. Most people in England uh, wanted to leave the EU. Uh, it would have been difficult to say yes. But there are people in in Northern Ireland. Uh, and there are people in Scotland who don't want to leave the EU, and or indeed there are people in London who don't want to leave the EU. Therefore, you can't really do it. You, you, you'd, if you'd wanted to do that, you'd have had to have some sort of mechanism by which Northern Ireland or Scotland would have been given a veto. But that would have been very difficult to justify democratically. So I'm, I'm not sure there was a solution to this. If you're going to have a referendum at all, which all parties agreed on, after all, because they thought they're going to win it. As I think I say in the book, well, the vote in England and in Wales was was fairly typical with the state of opinion across Europe. Scotland and Northern Ireland stand out. Scotland, because clearly EU membership is the road to independence or was the road to independence. Um, And for Northern Ireland, it was the solution to the border problem or it was, you know, um, it it had caused the, the whole Irish issue in a sense to to disappear or at least to be pushed down the agenda and i agree it for ireland it caused all sorts of problems both north and south of the border and and for scotland it was a great disappointment to i suppose to the nationalists 
I mean, if the nationalists had really thought that the Brexit vote would bring about Scottish independence, you'd think they would have welcomed it. But the, the fact is they, they were very angry about the vote. And I, I, I imagine that's because they realised that after Brexit, Scottish independence became much more problematic. Well, I think these are exactly the kind of sort of, you know, you know sort of territorial clearly wasn't thought through by by um, anybody. And there's um, no. sort of too, too broad for the for this conversation in many ways. But I think that, um, you know, all kinds of complexities and difficulties um, here. But just just returning to um, to something that you say um, sort of very clearly in the book, I mean, you argue um, that um, the vote leave was both um, you represented both an emotional attachment to national sovereignty and a range of other issues. Uh, most obviously immigration, which might be summed up as the hope that a British government outside the EU would pay more attention to voters. I mean, do you think that hope has been fulfilled since 2016? Uh, no. <laughs> in, a, in a word. I mean, I, I thought, OK, it now seems very naive. I'm not sure why it should have seemed, well, it should have seemed naive at the time. But I mean, I thought that Brexit would mean that there would be a, a much more uh, serious concentration on levelling up. Um, to, you know, to use the phrase that that the government uses, that uh, I thought that it would mean that um, a, a labour shortage, a relative labour shortage, would mean an increase in in wages, which it, which it did mean, but that it it would also mean that the government and industry would make a huge effort to improve um, vocational training and education in the in the less well off parts of the country, because suddenly th- they would need workers. They would not simply be able to uh, to import um, well educated and and cheap workers from Eastern Europe. Uh, and of course, this didn't happen because it turned out to be much more convenient to carry on importing labour if you um, if you couldn't get it from Eastern Europe, then you would get it from somewhere else. And I think you know that levelling up and educational improvement proved to be pretty pretty tenuous. Um, I mean, I thought I, I'm not don't think I said this in the book, but I I wrote it somewhere that I thought you'd be able to judge the government to a large extent on. Uh, who they'd appoint as Secretary of State for Education, and I think um, the answer to that is um, yes, you do. You do see. You do see that. So I think a great disappointment, which to which there may be some mitigating factors. Okay, the, there was COVID, um, but so I don't think that's much of an excuse, really. Thank you. Um, the book quotes Professor Ashoka Modi, an IMF official, former IMF, uh, IMF official and, and now professor at Princeton University. And I quote here, on Brexit, British citizens must decide what kind of nation they want to live in. I wondered what conception of the UK or Britain, in your view, has emerged from the referendum and its aftermath. And yes. you mentioned, we have mentioned already uh, the devolved nations too. How would they fit in? Yeah. Well, uh, when uh, Professor Modi wrote this, as you know, the, the context is, is that he was saying that the economic arguments were not decisive, and it should not be a decision that should be made on economic grounds, but on the grounds of the sort of country you wanted. In other words, did you want to be part of a European confederation? Did you want to be an independent, you know, nation state, whatever? And that, and that you were free to choose on those grounds, and should not be constrained by arguments about economic success or economic failure, because he thought it wouldn't make all that much difference, which seems to have been pretty well, um, pretty accurate as a prediction. Um, Well, the sort of country that has, well, of course, a much more divided country than it appeared before. Um, Okay, you could say, well, Brexit is our version 
of divisions that are now becoming visible all over the democratic world. Uh, you know, people often say, oh, well, Brexit, it's like Trump, isn't it? Well, it's it's like Trump in the sense that both Brexit and Trump are produced by a similar discontent with the neoliberal globalist agenda, I think, um, which of which the EU, after all, was a major um, facilitator. So wanting to leave the EU was um, a natural response to that. Um, but what sort of country have we, have, we, have we emerged as? Well, I think one in which the, the division that David Goodhart makes between somewhere people and anywhere people has become much more visible. Um, you know, the, 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 only, the only part of England that voted, uh, the only region in England that voted to remain was London. And I think you do get, there is a difference between London and the rest of the country and between the big cities and the smaller towns in the countryside. There's an age difference, there's a gender difference. There is certainly a class difference. Um, and Goodhart also said that the he thought the referendum vote was the most clearly class-based vote since since the 1950s, which is not has not is not a widespread view, but I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, and uh, so I think we, we've come out as a, a much more, a more deeply divided country than I thought, and also one in which the division has has been perpetuated in in other ways. Um, I thought, indeed, I wrote. Rather, rather, again, rather naively, that I thought in a few years people would have largely forgotten about this, and that it would be quite difficult to find a Remainer. You know, slightly jokingly, that people tend not to admit to having voted for things that turn out not to have been a good idea. Um, and but of course, the the division between Leave and Remain has now metastasized into all sorts of other areas, um, and I think it does show a, a deep cultural division. Um, which is not unique to, to to Britain or England. In fact, it's as I as I say, it's uh, we have our version of one that seems to be emerging everywhere. But I mean, it's, 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 it's the worry then that there is that social division, but also there's this you know that's overlaid by or coincides with or cuts across the um, sort of territorial issues where unionism seems to be sort of contested and the status of the UK as a sort of unitary state seems to be contested. Yes, I don't think anyone would think that our present system of devolution is 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 permanent or, or particularly stable but whether or whether i mean okay scottish scottish nationalism is the most powerful force i would have thought but it's shown itself to be relatively fragile too you know it, it's as if it, in certain circumstances it appeared to be on the rise it doesn't really quite at the moment and if post-brexit britain appears to be um relatively stable and successful um, or at least as successful or more successful than the EU, it may mean that uh, the the idea of independence for Scotland within the EU becomes less attractive. As far as Ireland is concerned, I think no one no one can predict. This one assumption is that demographic and other trends are pushing towards Irish unity, but as in the case of Scotland, I think in many ways economic fact tends to go against it. And one thing that seems to me undesirable, though it may be inevitable, is that we end up with the United Kingdom, which is um, not happy with itself, as it were, but which is held together by by purely economic and practical issues. In other words, you, you would like to be part of an independent Scotland, 
but you can't afford it, or you would like to be part of United Ireland, but you can't afford it, and therefore you're stuck with the United Kingdom because because that's the milch cow, and that's not a very healthy situation. Oh dear, <laughs> bleak prospects here. Turning to the to the end to the to the concluding pages of the book, you 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 write about how Britain must decide its response to new dangers, and this is beyond. This is outside of its borders now. Hmm. Um, and that much depends on its political and intellectual elites, but far more will depend on its people. What do you, what do you think the role of elites and uh, the people are in, in this? Well, the last few years seem to show a, a, a considerable difference of, of sentiment between the, the, you know, the educated anywhere people and the less educated somewhere people. I suppose that's always existed, and and I expect it exists everywhere. But Brexit brought this out very starkly and and inflamed it. I think it, it caused ill feeling on both sides, um, and that we have to get over that. I think I think Britain and you know the elite, the political class, responded rather well to the uh, the threat to Ukraine, and there's been a remarkable consensus about continuing support for Ukraine, though of course it does not actually cause us any great hardship or even danger yet, uh, and maybe it won't. So I think, you know, things are not, um, I don't want to say that everything is dreadful and that we're, we're on the road to, uh, you know, to, to collapse. Um, I, you know, I think there are, there are things that we still have in common. There are still things that we, 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 we agree about. Um, but the, the trouble is, I mean, the trouble is, or one problem has been that since 2016, or certainly since um, soon after 2016, the, the the political situation has been so uncertain that that no decisions seem to be, or very few decisions seem to be permanent. Uh, so there's, a, I think, this in itself tends to inflame differences. Uh, it's often said, you know, people have to accept the result. Of a vote, of a popular vote, which is true, but then um, the thing is, we've we've had a lot of votes, we've had a lot of political changes, and we haven't got back to any any situation of stability. It looks as though the stability we shall have next will be uh, will be Keir Starmer as prime minister. That's not too bold a, a prediction, given his present problems um, with some of his party. But you know, obviously, that's the most likely thing. And so a great deal will depend on on whether the Labour Party can or wishes to, uh, you know, heal the nation's wounds and uh, and and can make itself um, a party of government that appeals widely. No doubt it would wish to do that. Whether it will be able to do that, we shall see. So so moving to the, the, the towards the end of our conversation, um, the the um, a few a few general sort of reflections really, but mm. the image of the EU that the book presents is is somewhat negative, and I just wondered: are we reading, are we are we reading your um, your book fairly there, um, or accurately? Um, well, pr- probably reading it accurately. I mean, I don't. Mm. I've never denied that I've been. I've always been rather sceptical about the the rather utopian vision of European unity. And I think it is clear that the adoption of the euro was a damaging and bad idea, which Europe is now stuck in. What the alternative would have been, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you could say, well, it, would it have been some sort of, you know, the sort of thing that Mrs. Thatcher wanted, a, a free trading block? Well, well, maybe that would have been enough to aim at for the time being. But then um, the reaction against neoliberalism, one could call it that, was 
what pushes the one of the things that pushed the the EU to become more controlling of its uh, in of the internal policies of member states and i think you know the the need for some of its well particularly of france to push towards making the eu a great power in the world is um again something that may well turn out to be an illusion but it's an illusion that it was it was difficult for britain to to buy into i th- i think the eu has always been a top down project that may be okay as long as you're not trying to interfere too much in people's lives but when you are doing that and the eu clearly does do that directly and indirectly um it it makes the the democratic deficit much more difficult to um to accept you know people say oh yes but after all the council of ministers you know all, all the governments are elected they're all um they're all, they're all democratically chosen by the member states but then the decisions they make are made are made outside the public eye there is no european demos there is no the european parliament is not in control of european policy the european central bank is deliberately independent and so on so it's it's a very strange system in which democracy plays a very, a very small part because perhaps democracy couldn't really play a part without without breaking the whole thing up so it just seems to me that the it was trying to do things that are incompatible with um with democratic control and i thought that, that was always likely to end in tears but um i mean do you see the 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 eu as inherently unstable or um uh, cuz i think there's at some point where you you um, anticipate this disintegration um in, in the book but... yes that may have been that may have been uh, a mistake i think i've also said on a number of occasions and so have many other people that it it reminds me a bit of the austro-hungarian empire you know if if it didn't exist you have to invent it um it, and nobody likes it but nobody think can think of any alternative and therefore it's it, it sort of carries on dealing with crises as they occur because there isn't really any any there's no way out and there's no and there's no way of really changing the system so i think it you know it would it seems to me it will go on probably as it is for a long a long time unless there's an economic or fin- another financial crisis but that doesn't seem on the face of it very likely that I'm not an economist and certainly not a financial expert hmm. so so the book appeared in um in January 2021 and i just mm-hmm. wondered if there's um if there's anything that's happened um since then that has affected how you view the eu or the uk or the promise of brexit yeah well i mean the the invasion of ukraine is certainly one thing which showed the it seemed to me to show the eu okay the eu is now giving a lot of money to ukraine so i read but the the eu's initial response was was very incoherent and very and very weak i think and the idea that the eu by the very force of its size and its economic um weight could could maintain peace in europe was clearly um disproved uh and uh, i think that the eu has shown itself to be pretty much a non-player in circumstances like that I mean maybe the EU well it was designed for a time of of stability it belongs to the the age that we may now be leaving in which we believe, we thought we were we were moving towards a you know a, a rules based liberal world order um if that's no longer what we are moving towards then it's hard to see how the EU really fits into that um and uh, or what its role could be uh, you know one one view is that it it has to become a major power with its own army its own etc i mean that just seems to me that's not going to happen 
or what does it become? Something like the League of Nations or um, or simply a, a financial arrangement between between independent states. As for, and, I mean, sorry, but so that's that's one thing that's changed. I mean, is the is the mm, war mm. Ukraine obviously? Mm, mm. Uh, I mean, generally, the, the the obviously the rise of China, the the uncertainty as to what China's intentions are, mm-hmm. uh, Britain's attempt, well, successful it would seem so far to 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 move itself into a into into an Anglosphere um, role with with the AUKUS Treaty. And to align itself more with the with the Indo-Pacific, with the Pacific region, mm-hmm. through uh, trade treaties and and political understandings with countries like Japan, um, that's that's a big change. Whether it's whether it's sensible or not, only time will tell. But that seems that certainly is something that I don't think anyone would have predicted in in 2016, when after all the the, the Remainer argument. Was usually that that leaving the EU would make Britain um, a, a mar- would marginalise Britain and make it into a, you know, a sort of new Albania. And I just, um, I mean, a final question is um, whether you've been surprised at the way the book has been received or reviewed. Or uh, well, there are a couple of reviews I re- do remember, which were um, which were really rather kind. One was by Fintan O'Toole, who said. A sort of nice backhanded compliment. He said uh, something like, "You know, it's a very good book." And if uh, if if I couldn't persuade people that Brexit was a good idea, he didn't see how anybody could. <laughs> Which I think was rather a nice thing to say, uh, especially as I'd been slightly um, uh, satirical about his own work. And then uh, my colleague uh, Richard Evans uh, said something like that: um, "I was a sort of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde." Uh, that uh, that um, when writing about history, I was um, I was Doctor Jekyll. When I got onto the onto Brexit in the EU, I turned into Mister Hyde. <laughs> so I thought that was, that was good. I thought those were both quite quite nice. <laughs> in yeah, a, a sort of way. Robert Toombs, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for uh, sparing the time for this conversation. Thank you. It's been, been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.